happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord in worship together this morning. And this morning, I have a confession for you at the front end here. It might come as a shock. I used to think that I understood my wife. I've made this mistake quite a few times throughout our marriage, 10, 13-ish years now, I think. But you see, I'm a gift giver. And one of the things that exposes the truth that I don't really understand her is how often she returns the things I get her. I won't retell to you every instance of getting her just the wrong thing, uh, but I will share one of the most recent events with you. Uh, Last year, like every year, I try to mull over in my head what I might get her for Christmas. And so all the way throughout the year, I'm trying to figure it out, January, February, March, and nothing came to me until this December, early on, I had one of those rare moments of brilliance. My wife drinks water all the time. She wants it ice cold. And she's often commenting that, you know, our refrigerator cannot produce enough ice to keep up with her cravings for it. And so it was like a light shone from heaven. I knew exactly what I needed to get, an ice maker. You know, so I did my research, and I got one of those countertop ice makers that makes the nice you know, nugget ice, like you get at Chick-fil-A or at Sonic. And so we, we put that out. It has a nice little backlight. looks very fancy. You know, got, got it on the counter there, and I'm like, I have done it. We got this. We set it up. It seems like she likes it. A week or so went by. And then one day, I came home after a run. I was exhausted, hot and sweaty. I'm like, I'm going to get a cup of water. I'm going to put some of that ice in it. Ice maker's gone. It had been returned to its box that she had secreted away somewhere and was marked for return. You see, she told me she valued her counter space and quiet more than ice. I thought I understood her, but I was wrong. We're in 1 Kings chapter 19 this morning. And we're considering verses 9 through 18. And this is a passage that has been preached many times to great effect. And I think most of us have probably read this passage or heard heard it preached before. And I think we we have a danger uh, that's twofold. One is is that we become overly familiar with it over the years. But the other is, is we come to a passage like this thinking that we understand it already. But as we look at it, at least for me this week, we come to discover, I might have missed the point. And so I'm asking you this morning to approach this passage with me, to to step into the cave with Elijah as if it's the first time. Our main idea is this. This is what I think the main point of this little pericope is, and it, it ties into the big idea of the section as a whole, is God is always faithful to his word, and you could connect that to that big idea that we stated sort of hangs over all of Elijah's ministry and really kings, that the Lord works according to his word, that life and death are in his hands. And so this morning, God is always faithful to his word. It's this truth that is going to hit the prophet Elijah afresh this morning and give to him courage. Remember, we left him sort of depressed and despondent, discouraged at his ministry at the base of the broom tree. The Lord fed him last week, and 
called him to go to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, right? So we come, and we can also think of the passage this way. I'm trying to make this portable for you. I think last week we said just keep swimming, and at least one person hung on to that this week. Uh, And so here you can think of it, Elijah has a fever, and the only prescription is not more cowbell, but more promises. The, The prescription for his discouragement is the promise of God. God is going to show up, and he's going to remind Elijah of his past faithfulness, his past promises, that he keeps his word, and he's going to encourage Elijah to to look out into the future. He's going to assure him that indeed he will keep his promises going forward. And when Elijah looks to the past and considers God's faithfulness, and he looks to the future and considers how God will be faithful, he will be presently comforted. It's true for you and I as well. We find comfort and encouragement when we consider God's promises, when we recognize that God is faithful to his word. Always. Let's pray, and then we'll step into the passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time where we are able to gather and hear your word proclaimed. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to understand and to believe. And I ask that you would give me clarity of thought, eloquence of speech, and purity of heart as I try to make as plain as I can the teaching of your word. Lord, all of us need your spirit that we might encounter you in your word today. We ask now that you would speak. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a long journey through Kings. We started at the beginning of the book, and we found the wonderful King David, a man after God's own heart, God's chosen king, old and cold. Couldn't even be kept warm by the beautiful Abishag. Remember, there's a beauty pageant. They had, him, had her lay down next to David, and she, she couldn't even warm him up. And then there was that tussle for the throne, and eventually Solomon came to power, and the kingdom continued to to rise. Things got really good. Solomon built a temple. The Lord blessed his prayer, blessed the people. His glory was apparent. Things were really, really good. God's blessings were poured out upon the united monarchy. And yet along the way, we identified some of these seeds of apostasy, some of these seeds of unfaithfulness that were growing even while Solomon sat the throne. And all of a sudden, in chapter 11, those seeds burst forth from the ground and bore the fruit of idolatry. Solomon had given himself, had turned his heart away from the Lord and to gold, guns, and girls. His wives, the passage tells us, turned his heart away to false gods. And the consequence of this was the splitting of the kingdom. The Lord tore it in two. So son, the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, would reign in Judah. And then the ten northern tribes would fall under the reign of Jeroboam. 
And then we sort of followed the chronicling. We talked about a couple kings in Judah and then a couple kings in northern kingdom, which is called Israel. And that's where we've been the last few weeks because things have gotten really, really dark in Israel. Remember when Jeroboam led the people out from underneath that oppressive reign of Rehoboam, we had some Exodus vibes, right? There was oppression from the king. He leads the people out into this new land that seems to hold promise. And then he went full Aaron on us and built not one, but two golden calves for the people to worship in their own way. And from that point forward, things just got worse and worse in the northern kingdom. There were assassinations and political machinations. One king burned the palace down around himself. And then finally, King Omri, a sort of counterfeit David, sets up shop and brings stability. And after Omri, who was the worst of the worst, we come to Ahab. And we hear that Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And Ahab seeks not just to bring in this syncretism where there's all these sorts of gods and worship Yahweh, that's cool, and we'll worship Baal and all the rest. He wants to supplant Yahweh, the God of Abraham and of Isaac, and he wants to put Baal in his place. That's when Elijah shows up in chapter 17. Remember we said it was a little bit like a wrestler making an entrance, if you've ever watched professional wrestling, the whole thing is sort of scripted, and you have the, the, the evil heel in the ring talking smack, and then all of a sudden the lights go out, and then the theme music plays for the, the heroine to enter. You know, in my day, it was Stone Cold. It was like, dun-dun, dun-dun, dun-dun. Now, I think it's like John Cena. I don't know his music. But, but you know, the, the heroine comes running on to the scene to confront the bad guy. And that's exactly what Elijah does at the beginning of chapter 17. He shows up to confront King Ahab and call him to repentance. He says, the covenant curses are coming to the land because you have not repented. It is not going to rain until I say so. And then the word of the Lord, again, the word of the Lord is the main character in Kings and in these chapters. The word of the Lord moves Elijah to hide himself by the brook Cherith. This is symbolic that God is judging his people not only by withholding rain, but by withholding his word. There he provides for Elijah. He feeds him by ravens. Then the word moves Elijah into the home of a Gentile widow where there are a, there's a jug and a jar from which she makes bread for the prophet. Her son dies, Elijah raises him from the dead. And then finally in chapter 18, three years have passed and it's time for Elijah to go back to the king. It's time for him to confront King Ahab. And so he does that. He shows up and he says, all right, Ahab, it's time for a showdown. High noon, Baal versus Yahweh. And, and Yahweh will play an away game at Mount Carmel. We'll go there. You bring your prophets, and then I'll show up. So there's Elijah, and then there's hundreds of prophets of Baal, Baal, Baal. I'm still not sure. There's a 
people say it a bunch of different ways. I'm just going to go Baal the rest of the way today. So, so Baal is, is there, and his prophets are there, and there's Yahweh, and Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We're, you guys build your altar. You put your sacrifice on it. I'll then build my altar. I'll put my sacrifice on it. You guys can go first. You'll call out to your God to set fire to your sacrifice. We'll see what happens. And then I'll take my turn, and I'll call out to my God to set fire to my sacrifice. We'll see what happens. Prophets of Baal, they, they cry out, they cut themselves, they whine, complain, they, they get frantic and frenzied. They probably have a really nice emotional experience. Oh, Baal! And I love the text. No one listened, no one responded, no one was there. Nothing, because Baal is no God. Elijah says, it's my turn. He says, what we're going to do, actually, I've built, I'm going to build this altar and take these 12 stones that represent the tribes of Israel and God's willingness and his graciousness to renew the covenant with them. We're, we're putting them together. And now what I want you to do, I want you to pour water on this altar, a bunch of it. So there's water all around the base of it. His sacrifice is set up. And he's like, now, you know, watch this. And he prays to the Lord and woof, fire from heaven, lightning and the water and the wood and the sacrifice are all licked up. And then he says, the people fall down, they all say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah says, this looks like covenant renewal to me. Kill all the prophets of Baal. He slaughters them down by the brook Kidron. And then the scene shifts, that's where we were last week, and he tells Ahab to eat a covenant meal. Things seem to be turning. Revival seems as if it is on its way to the northern kingdom of Israel. Ahab eats. Elijah prays that the covenant curse would come to an end. He prays for rain. It rains. And he runs before Ahab to the summer home that Ahab is sharing with Jezebel. Things, we said, are getting easier. It looks like things are going to get brighter. I sang it for you last week. And then Jezebel is not swayed whatsoever. She's not moved. Her resolve is strengthened, and she puts a price on Elijah's head. And so Elijah, he's a sensible man. He runs for his life. And eventually, when he gets very far south, he lays down beneath a broom tree and he prays that the Lord would take his life from him. And we sort of laughed at Elijah saying, you know, you're one of two people ever to not die. <laughs> and so like the Lord straight up says, no, not now, not ever. But the reason he wants to die is that he, he feels like his ministry is a failure because it hasn't yielded the results that he hoped for. And so we recognize what Elijah needs to recognize and what God's going to show him more of this week is that his word is always working even if it's not readily apparent even to Elijah, his prophet. And so he comes to Elijah and shows his care for him. He touches him, gives him food, water. He says, there's a journey I have for you. Come to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today in verse 7 of chapter 19, and I'm going to read through verse 12. Elijah is asleep beneath the broom tree. He's already eaten and slept once. 
Verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food. Forty days and forty nights. That should put some bells off for you. To Horeb, Horeb is synonymous with Sinai again, bells, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, again, alarm bells, passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. It's at this point that we usually get the story confused a little bit. I think oftentimes we come and we read it as if God is rebuking Elijah. Like Elijah's not supposed to be here at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and so God is saying to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? You're not supposed to show up here. I have other things that you're supposed to be doing. Why are you here? And Elijah sort of casts this self-pitying and whiny prophet. Oh God, I'm the only one left and the people are so mean and they won't listen to me. And God's like, enough, go. But that's not what's happening. God is not rebuking Elijah. Do you know how we know? Look back at verse 7 again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat. Why? Here's your reason for or because the journey is too great for you. You see, when God is feeding Elijah, he's not just caring for him, he's also commissioning him. He has a journey that Elijah is supposed to make, and that journey will take Elijah to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Elijah is right where he is supposed to be. Question comes, why? I think two reasons primarily. So that he might be encouraged by the Lord and so that he might bring charges against the covenant-breaking people in Israel. Elijah is sort of a discouraged prosecutor. And he is coming to the Lord before the Lord in a place where the Lord is present and he is, he is laying out the truth and he's asking God for justice. We'll see this pretty clearly in a minute, but I want to back up and recognize, I tried to bring your attention to things that I thought should be conjuring up images of Moses in your mind. 
right? Phrases like, the Lord passed him by, and he was in a cave that he lodged in 40 days and 40 nights. These are not textual mistakes. They're there on purpose. You see, we need the context of the Exodus to understand what is happening to Elijah here. So listen, I'm going to read a lengthy passage from Exodus chapter 33. You see, Elijah is basically stepping into the shoes of Moses and having a very similar experience. In Exodus 33, comes after Exodus 32, shocking. But the people, if you remember in Exodus 32, have been worshiping a golden calf. Remember, Moses comes down the mountain, he breaks the tablets of the covenant in half, he grinds up uh, the golden bull, he puts it in the water, makes the people drink it, then tells the people, if you're with Yahweh, come over to my side, and all those who refuse to repent are slaughtered by the Levites. Really pretty picture. At any rate, we come to Exodus 33, and the Lord tells Moses, I'm going to take the people into the promised land, as I said, but I'm not going to go up with you because I am holy and this is a stiff-necked and rebellious people. If I go up with them, I'm going to consume them. So I'm going to take them in, but I'm not going to be imminently, personally present. And this is what Moses says, Exodus chapter 33, starting with verse 14. You can turn there in your Bible or listen, it'll be worth it. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 14 Verse 15, sorry. And he said to him, Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, the Lord said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, 
And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And God said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. You see some of those connections now a little bit more clearly? Elijah, like Moses, performs mighty signs and wonders before a pagan king. Elijah, like Moses, is sent food in the wilderness. Elijah, like Moses, has 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain. Elijah, like Moses, goes into a cleft or a cave from where the Lord will pass him by. But well, why? Again, there's two reasons. The Lord is reminding us of the covenant that he made at first. He's reminding us, everyone, Elijah, of his past promises. And it's my contention that he is comforting Elijah. You see, one of the reasons in Exodus that God shows Moses his glory is to proclaim his favor to Moses. Remember, he says to Moses, I know you by name. And I think likewise, there's some of that going on. He wants to show favor to Elijah, to remind Elijah that he has called him by name, that he knows him, that he is God, that he is completely in control, that his faithfulness never falters or fails. And so he passes Elijah by. There is a mighty rushing wind that tears at the mountainside. But God is not in the wind. There are tremors from an earthquake that shake the feet of the prophet. God is not in the earthquake. There is fire. God is not in the fire. And then, a deafening silence, a gentle whisper, a still, small voice. 
That's where God is. In His Word. Isn't it amazing that the way God most clearly reveals Himself to us is in His Word, in human language. We see that ultimately in Christ, two of us can not think of John 1 when we're considering the fact that God identifies with his word. You know, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. God reveals himself to us in his word, in Christ, and in the words that Christ speaks, and in the works that Christ does. Such ordinary way to reveal himself, just by condescending and communicating to us with words. Perhaps the ordinary nature of words is what causes us to become bored with them and more, you know, focused on supernatural phenomena. In words, you use them every day. We talk to each other, you know, we sing, read. There's words everywhere, sort of, sort of boring. But earthquakes, winds, fire, oh, That'll get us going. I think so often we, we come to church and we listen to God's word, the word of the creator of the cosmos, with yawns behind our eyes. All the while hoping that God would just, you know, show himself like he did to Elijah or Moses. We want the earth to shake when we pray, like it did for the apostles in Acts. We want mountains to be suddenly engulfed with storms that play trumpets like Sinai was engulfed when the Israelites came to its base. We want the sun to stand still like it did for Joshua. We, we want to lay out fleece at night and see it dry in the morning like Gideon. We want to see fire fall. If only God would really show up with the fireworks and the wonders. He really wowed us. Well then, our spiritual lives would really take off. We'd really know intimacy with God. Yet if we pay attention to Moses and Elijah, the most important vision of God that they get is not what they see, but what they hear. Did you notice that? Moses asks God for a vision of his glory. And God tells him his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty God 
wants to encourage the discouraged Elijah, and so he gives him a display of his glory. He puts Elijah in Moses' shoes, turns up the miraculous, and then cuts it off entirely and speaks in that still, small voice. He speaks with his word. A reminder to Elijah that even if God is not wowing him with how he is working, he is still working through his word. God doesn't need to shout to get things done with earthquakes and winds. He can speak in a deafening silence and be just as effective. We come to this passage and we know that Elijah is going to be standing there on this mountain. And then we see, through these textual connections, that he's standing in the same place that Moses once did, having a similar experience where God passes him by and shows him his glory by speaking to him his holy word. And all of a sudden here, as we stand in 1 Kings chapter 19 on Mount Sinai, we're standing there next to not just Elijah, but also Moses. And all of a sudden... Christian people that we are, we think to ourselves, now where, where have we seen a mountain and Elijah and Moses before altogether? And we think of our scripture reading this morning, our call to worship, and the mountain of transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. And there stands Jesus, the word made flesh, talking with Moses and Elijah Moses looked for the glory of God, was given God's word. Elijah needed to remind it about who God was and is. He was given a still small voice, God's word. When God's word is fully revealed and made flesh, Elijah and Moses are put there on the mountain to see it in Christ. Moses goes from the cleft where he sees God to the mountain of transfiguration where he sees Christ. Elijah goes from the cave where he hears God. He's taken to the mountain where he sees Christ. But notice, as they look full into the wonderful face of Jesus, and Peter and James and John are sitting there, and Peter's coming up with weird, crazy ideas because he's Peter, and they're, they're looking at Jesus, and a cloud comes, and the Father says, what does he say? He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Look at him. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Look at his face. He says, listen to his word. That's not a mistake. Knowing God has never been about seeing physical wonders. Knowing God has always been about listening to his holy word. Christian, you want wow in your spiritual life. Then you must recognize that caramel moments, you know, real Moses in the cleft, Elijah in the cave type moments only come 
from the still small voice written in black and white in the book. While moments come in the regular gathering together of believers on the Lord's Day, in the ordinary discipline of reading your Bible, in the quiet hours of the morning spent in God's Word. Wow is only found in the Word. So many of us go looking for wow experiences in all the wrong places. And we don't, friends, you don't need to go in search of mountaintop experiences. You want to experience God? You need only sit in a wooden pew on a Sunday morning. You want to experience God? You need only settle into your armchair on a Tuesday night with a book in your hands. You want to be wowed? You need only go for a walk and listen to the word of God come through your earbuds. God is in his word. If you want wow, listen to God's word. Listen to the Lord Jesus. Non-Christian, you're not so different in this. I think if you're like most of us, you go looking for highs in life for real wow moments, real experiences that ultimately leave you feeling low. Friend, you were made for relationship with God. And you can have it if you will turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ who died for the sins of all who will put their faith in him. You, right now, non-Christian, are at war with God. But you can have peace with God. If you turn from your sin and trust in the substitute of God, Jesus Christ, who died so that sins can be forgiven, and who is raised so that all who are united to him by faith can be raised from the dead like him unto eternal life. If you want a real spiritual experience, non-Christian. Turn from your sin. Move from death to life by trusting in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wow of the word is God's way of telling Elijah the story of Moses. Elijah is discouraged. He's asking to die. The Lord feeds him, tells him to come to Sinai. It's like he sends him some food and then invites him over. And once Elijah gets there, he says, state your case. Elijah states his case, and he says, let me remind you who I am. I'm going to tell you the story of Moses by putting you in Moses' shoes in this place at Mount Covenant. And I remind you that I always keep my word that my promises have been true all the way from Genesis 1 and to Moses in the Exodus, and they're true now. I'm the covenant-keeping God. You can trust me. Our God is the storytelling God, the wonder-working God. And I think it benefits us when we learn 
and remember the stories of the Bible, of our people. These are our spiritual ancestors. And we do well to be acquainted with these stories because they teach us about who God is and about his everyday continued faithfulness to us. We should tell these stories to one another. And not just these stories, but our stories. I think every one of us can recount times in our lives when the Lord has been faithful over and over and over again. It might be a good application for you today at lunch or later this week to just share with one another some of the ways that God has been faithful to you over the years. It's a good reminder that he has been faithful in the past, that he always keeps his word, and that you can trust him to be faithful in the future. Lord reminds Elijah of his past faithfulness. He reminds him of the covenant, and he invites Elijah to bring charges again. Look at verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? State your case. What's your purpose? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah is not complaining. He's laying out the facts before the Lord. He's saying, I have ministered faithfully and the people have not repented. They have insisted on breaking your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They've gone after false gods. They even want to kill me. It seems as if I know you've got prophets hidden away with Obadiah and Ahab's house. I know they're in caves. I'm the only one out here, it seems, standing against Ahab and the monster in his bedroom, Jezebel. I I feel alone. I'm standing here like a bulwark. They are rejecting my ministry. They are rejecting your word. They need to be brought into the justice of the covenant. And the Lord's going to agree with him. Elijah wants justice. He is zealous for the name of the Lord. Man, I I want to be zealous for God like this. I want to care more about God's name and reputation than my own. It's almost as if you see Ahab's house and his reign in Israel had its opportunity at covenant renewal. Right after Carmel, the rain is falling. But then Jezebel, she turns against Elijah. And the renewal of the nation, it becomes an impossibility. Jezebel has turned everyone against the Lord. And now Elijah is asking for justice. And the Lord agrees with him. Verse 15. And the Lord said to Elijah, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Shaphat 
of Abel-Mahola you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Did I skip one? And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. The Lord is telling Elijah, I am going to bring justice. But he's also used his display of his glory to Elijah as an illustration of how he's going to do this. The Lord is not going to bring judgment to the people by earthquakes or wind or fire. He's not going to use earth, wind, or fire. He's going to use the simple, subtle, ordinary machinations of politics. And Elisha is going to take up the mantle of being his primary prophet. What we learn here is that God is always at work. One commentator said this, the quietness of Yahweh's work does not mean he is not at work, but rather that the kingdom of God has gone into its mustard seed mode. Worth recalling our scripture reading in Matthew 13, 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that when the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Friends, the Christian posture, when it seems almost as if God is out of control in the world, and there's the noise of evil everywhere, such that it seems impossible to hear any good, we should say to ourselves, it's quiet, too quiet. God is up to something. Sort of like if you've had children, you have that experience of walking into your house, and all of a sudden it's quiet for the first time in ages. And you know they're up to something. This is similar here. When it seems like all is quiet, God is up to something. Aslan is on the move. He's working out his plans and purposes. The kingdom is in mustard seed mode. Isn't that how God works throughout the Bible? We see it in Elijah's life. He's fed by ravens. We only know about it because Elijah wrote it down. He stays with a widow in Zarephath, the Gentile land. Takes the blessing of God there. Insignificant. Or perhaps supremely we see this in the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son takes up residence in the womb of an insignificant virgin girl. He's born not in a castle, but among cattle. I always joke that the song, you know, silent, and I always say, well, she probably she had a real labor, so it probably wasn't all that quiet, you know. But there is some truth in that, that song, Silent Night. The whole world seemed normal, silent, but everything was changed. In a field somewhere with insignificant shepherds, angels were singing, glory to God in the highest. God was at work in the quiet. 
When Jesus breathed his last on the cross, all was silent. On Good Friday, it seemed like God's plans had gone still. And on Holy Saturday, it seemed all was quiet. But all the while, Jesus Christ was proclaiming victory in the realm of the dead. Even on that Sunday morning, there wasn't enough noise to distract the women from their weeping at the tomb. But God was at work. Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. God works in the quiet and beneath the noise. He works and grows his kingdom a lot like a mustard seed works in the ground and grows up. Friends, it might seem like we've come to a place in history where God's quiet. But you need to say to yourself, too quiet. We live in an America that is a lot like Ahab's Israel, filled with idolatry and growing in animus towards God's people. But don't be fooled. Everything is happening right on schedule. God is at work. He's at work in his word. So don't lose heart. Don't be like Elijah beneath the broom tree. Oh, I've failed. No, keep being faithful. God's plans are being worked out according to the counsel of his will. He's not out of control. He's God. And he will bring himself glory. He will keep for himself a people. And that's what he tells Elijah in verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God is saying, I have a people and I will keep a people for myself. You might think that your ministry has failed, but my work is happening right now and it's going to happen after you're gone. This is a good lesson for us. I, I think we can be tempted sometimes to think that God's plans and purposes are wrapped up to a particular pastor or to particular churches or even to a particular denomination. But friends, denominations, churches, and pastors go by the wayside. And God's plans march on. God's word works. Wonderful illustration of this comes to us in the book of Acts in chapter 12. You can read it for homework tonight. But at the beginning of the chapter, we find James, the brother of John, killed by Herod. Then at the end of the chapter, it's so wonderful. Herod is, I guess he's wearing sequins or something. The text says he's shining. There's light bouncing off of him. And he won't give glory to God. And so an angel kills him. And he's eaten by worms and breathes no more. And there's this wonderful contrast that Luke brings to the four in verse 24. I'm actually going to put it in context. So, so James has died, and then this is what we read. Acts chapter 12, verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But, here's the contrast, the word of God increased and multiplied. 
James is dead. It seems like Herod has won, but now Herod is dead, and the word of God increases and multiplies. The messenger can be killed. His blood can cover the ground, but God's message goes forward in the mouths of his people. God's word gets done. This verse, verse 18, it would have been electrifying for Elijah. I have a remnant in Israel and they aren't going anywhere. And it should be electrifying for us. It's the equivalent of, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, Jesus Christ wins. Do not walk in this world as if we are a defeated people with your eyes down at your feet as you shuffle along on the sidewalk. No, lift your chin and smile with a twinkle in your eyes because Jesus Christ is not dead. He is risen. He is ruling and reigning. And he is returning to bring happily ever after with him, to vanquish all evil, to put an end to all of his foes. And that's good news. That's our hope for the future. Do you you see what God has done for Elijah? He said, I've been faithful in the past. I put you in the place of Moses. Here are my promises. I'm going to keep keeping my promises. And Elijah, you're right. I'm going to bring justice and I'm going to keep for myself a people. You can take it to the bank. Look at my track record. It's perfect. Brothers and sisters, we should learn this lesson. We look back at God's faithfulness in the past. And then we look forward knowing that we can trust his promises for the future. And so we experience a present comfort. That's grace for today. Hope for tomorrow. And friends, we were encouraged by these promises of God. Every time we come to the Lord's table, we're reminding ourselves that God is always faithful to his word, that he shows up in his word. And as we eat the body of Christ broken for us and we drink the blood of Christ shed for us, we we look back to the cross. We remember that our sins have been paid for. We look back to the resurrection of Christ from the dead and we are thrilled by the reality that those who trust in him will be made like him, sharing in a resurrection like his. And we look forward to his return and that great banquet where we will all eat and drink unto his glory and celebration. God is always faithful to his word. So if you are downcast this morning, I've got a prescription for you. It's not more cowbell. It's more promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day that reminds us of your rest from creation, the resurrection 
of our Savior, his rule and reign. Lord, this place is your place, and we come together here, though we are unworthy to meet with you. Indeed, we are unfit to serve in your kingdom. We come as sinners condemned by conscience and by your word. For while we are still in the body, we are in the wilderness, ignorant, weak, in danger, and in need of your help. Nevertheless, we are encouraged by your all-sufficient grace. And so we come here week after week, lively with hope of encountering you as we encourage one another and listen to your word. We know that you will give us peace afresh, that you will pour out more grace and more mercy. Lord, we are drawn to you in longing desire. You are present with us, and so we give you praise. We thank you that as we come to this table, we eat a meal with you. Continue to bless us with a feast of good things. Let before us the broken elements, the emblems of your dying love, cry to thee with broken heart for grace and forgiveness. We long for and delight in that blissful communion of your people. We long to have it eternally in your eternal house when the perfect kingdom comes in its fullness. We bless you. We give thanks to you for the blood of the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.